0: Um, today's uh, message we have as we're following along in our, in our statement of faith is entitled, We, uh, we Believe in Respecting uh, Civil Authorities. And uh, today we actually um, were privileged to have a few civil authoritarians with us today. And uh, I, let me just introduce Brian Jenkins and also Jim Link, uh, Jim gave me the titles of they're sitting in the back there, and we're glad that you're with us today. Uh, Brian is a deputy bailiff in the Lima Municipal Court, and also uh, Jim is a clerk of courts in the same same court as well. Now I'm not sure what all your your titles entail, but uh, we're privileged to have you with us today. So the question that we're asking today is: Should we listen? Should we obey and honor and respect our civil authorities? And the answer to the question is yes right would make your job a lot easier in fact if if we would have law-abiding citizens they uh... jim and uh... brian would not have a job but i imagine that's not going anywhere soon you you have pretty good job security as long as there are people on earth jim and uh, brian will certainly have a job to do and so uh... but the question is for what reasons why should we respect civil authorities? Why do we as believers, as, uh, as the church, why do we respect civil authorities? And also, what, what role does the church have in civil government? And also then, what kind of role does uh, civil government have towards its citizens and also to the church? Now, it's interesting, in our, uh, in our country, one of the things that our founding fathers made very, very, very clear is that we would have a complete distinct separation of church and state. And the founding fathers who would have all migrated from Europe were tired of having a tyrannical ruler dictate who they should worship, what they should worship, how they should worship. And so they said, in this country, we do not want to have interference from government to any kind of religious institution. Now... There is somewhat of an irony here because about a month ago, we all got a paid holiday and we had a barbecue and we got together as friends and family. We went to watch fireworks and we celebrated the great rebellion of this country against King George of England. So it's kind of an ironic thing here that we're talking about honoring uh, civil authorities and yet we celebrate the rebellion of our nation against another one. And we had the, the big Boston Tea Party. We threw the tea into the, into the harbor, and we said, no taxation without representation. And uh, so I, I thought, uh, I guess the, the question we have to ask is, at what point do we as believers look at civil authority and say, all right, enough is enough? Uh, at what point has civil authority gone and crossed the line, and when do we say enough is enough? And so it's my goal... And it's my attempt to leave my opinions aside and simply adhere to what Scripture says and look at what the Bible has to say about respecting and honoring civil authorities. I want to look at what Jesus says and what the Apostle Paul responds to, those, uh, to that question. And so I'm going to... Um, we'll be doing a lot of expository this morning and simply looking at what Scripture says. So... <clears throat> Why do we have laws in the first place? And what is the intent of law? Now, it seems as if though as, as we're progressing along through history, we, we're ending up with more and more and more and more laws. God began the universe with just one law. Thou shalt not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the day you eat thereof you shall surely die. Wasn't, he didn't explain a whole lot. He didn't... Uh, he didn't expound on it a lot. It was just one simple mandate, and that mandate was okay for about 2,600 years. God did not give any other mandates until Moses went up to Mount Sinai, and he received 613 commandments. And sometimes when we read the Old Testament, we think, oh, that's a lot of, a lot of law. It seems a bit cumbersome, but that's really nothing because in the New Covenant, the covenant we are living in in the New Testament... Now, I did not actually count these. I'm just going by what scholars say. We actually have over 1,100 commands in the New Covenant. So we are certainly not without law. We are still under a law. It's perhaps a bit different than the Mosaic Law, but we're still under law. Now, let's go forward several thousand years in today's world, and how many laws do you think exist in the United States of America? We are a free Democracy, we are a republic for the people, by the people, we get to elect our officials, we are not under a king. In fact, um, when George Washington, they wanted to crown him king after the Revolutionary War, and he simply refused it. He went home to his farm, he said, I want nothing to do with that, we just left that in Europe, let's leave it over there. And, but he only came back as um, being an elected official by the people, for the people, so how many laws do we have in a free country? Well, I did some research and found that nobody seems to really know for sure. There are so many of them. Some said that even a person in their own lifetime couldn't possibly read all of them. And I think the Obama health care uh, plan uh, has 11,000 pages of laws and bylaws just for that. And so I've, uh, the, the number is... Varies so much, so I, I really am not sure what to even say. But so I've, the, the number I've heard most frequently was once you take all the federal laws, you take state laws, you take local laws, you have labor unions and OSHA and EPA and all those kinds of institutions, we have approximately 325,000 laws in the United States of America. Now that's 325,000 ways that we could violate the law. So, wherever there's more law, there's more possibility of of violating it. And so, in America, it seems like the further we progress on, the more laws are needed to control humanity and to control the uh, basically bring order to the chaos that we as human beings bring. And so, the law, at least in civil government, its intent is to bring order and so that human life can um, can function properly. But God's intent for law is very different than perhaps um, uh, civil government is, or I think the intent of not, not all government laws. I uh, Once you move into the realm of OSHA and EPA and some of these things, you're just not sure there's any benefit there at all. It seems like it's only beneficial to certain organizations and certain institutions and sometimes we have to wonder what the benefit is. But God actually had benefits to His law. And I think it's important that we understand the benefit of law from God's perspective and understand and look at it through those lenses. Because the word law in Scripture is Torah. And I really wish our, interpreta- our interpreters would have never interpreted that word into law they should have just left it Torah because that word has an entirely different meaning in the Hebrew con- uh, context than it does in ours. We don't generally think of laws as being anything positive. They seem to be binding, restrictive. They seem to be uh, nothing liberating at all in our sense. But in God's sense, they actually Torah was to bring blessing. It was to it was to bring guidance. If you look in Joshua chapter one, God told. Uh, Joshua, if you obey my commands and you don't stray to the left nor to the right, then everything your hand touches will prosper. You will have good success. You're, you're going to, to be blessed. It's a road map. And so while there is no salvation in Torah, there's no salvation in law, however, it is a recipe for blessing and success. And when we as Christians want to disregard law, we're actually throwing away our blessing. Let's not throw away our blessing, but let's rather embrace it and so by the time however jesus comes on the scene people have used god's torah as a means to promote themselves as a we as a as a means to incredible financial gain they've used it to separate or include or exclude certain people and so god's torah was was selfishly used and jesus is very very upset at the religious leaders who took advantage of their positions of power To use what was intended to bring success to people was only being used to their own advantages. And so that's why Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to do away with it, but rather I've come to reinterpret it the way God intended it to be. And it was to be a blessing. Now, whether that is the intent of our government, which I really think it is. I really think our government has good intentions and they do want us as a people, citizens of this country... To flourish, Can you imagine the chaos? If we wouldn't have traffic laws, if we wouldn't have uh, certain rules and how to engage one another and how to behave and, and those kinds of things, we'd have all kinds of chaos. And so uh, if we look at law through the lenses of Torah, when in, in fact I think we'll have a more positive outlook on law. So again, I don't want to bring my own uh, opinions into this, but rather let's look at what Jesus says. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? Now, I am using, I think in our um, Romans 13 is in our um, scripture reference as far as in our in our statement of faith. I'm going to be using that and also Matthew chapter 22. So if you want to turn to Matthew 22, because Jesus addresses this issue, uh, because he's asked about it. Matthew 22, verses 15 through 22. And I want to look at how Jesus responds to this question. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? Now, if you look up until this point, Jesus' political involvement is almost non-existent. He comes into a world where the political scene is absolutely chaotic. And it is nothing like the United States of America. There is a tyrannical, empirical ruler in Caesar. And Caesar controls everything. Caesar decides who lives and dies. Caesar decides what kind of tax laws are going to be. You have really no... Uh, you, you can't go to a court somewhere and, and dispute perhaps what your taxes should be. There is, Caesar is, in an, is an, is an essence, is God in, in that type of... So that's the political scene Jesus comes in. He also leaves this world, and he leaves this world in as much political chaos as it was when he came. So Jesus' involvement in politics is very, very limited, and he only gets involved whenever he was asked a question. Now, it's very interesting in the context of this. In verse 15, he says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. Now, if you look at the passage before, Matthew 22 Jesus is using some of his most scathing words against his own people, his own religious leaders, those that were in authority and in power. And he's, uh, by, by the time Jesus is done teaching some of these parables, they're really upset with Jesus. He uses phrases like in Matthew 21, he says he says, tax collectors and harlots have a better chance at getting into heaven than you guys. Whoa. That's a very scathing thing to say. Jesus, uh, the more I study the, the, the teachings of Jesus, the more I realize Jesus is just not a crowd pleaser. He just is not a crowd. Uh, he's a crowd dwindler, if anything. He is not politically correct. He is here to do one thing, and that is to do the will of his Father, and that does not always, that's not okay with everyone. And so by this time, he also gives the parable of the, the, the vine dresser in which he portrays himself as the Son, that you guys are going to kill. And he also uh, has the parable of the, of the wedding. And a lot of these parables are specifically directed towards the Pharisaic and Sadducee leaders. And by this time, they are not too happy and amused with Jesus at all. So, they're going to, they're plotting a way in which they might get rid of Jesus. And how they're going to, they want to basically hang him on the horns of a dilemma. And they're putting him in a situation in which there is absolutely no possible way that he can answer the question and not oppose somebody. So let's look at how this all is taking place. It says in verse 16, And they went to him and their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, now look at who, there, there's, these are Pharisees and Herodians. Pharisees are um, a religious sect of the Jewish people. They're very strong nationalistically. They're very proud of their, their heritage as being sons of Abraham. And they're proud of the nation of Israel. They hate the Roman oppression that they're under. And uh, so we have that side of the political scene. It's, uh, they, they might be considered the, I don't know, the conservatives of their day. And then we also have the Herodians. And so who are these people? And these are Greek uh, people that are loyal to Herod. And so they are certainly in support of the Roman rule that is there. And so they, on purpose, bring two opposing sides and are going to pit Jesus against these two in order to hang him on the horns of a dilemma in which it seems to be there is no way that Jesus is going to get out of this. And he he also remains rather um, neutral in his political views. And this is a way that we can bring out, well, whose side is he on? And depending on whose side is he, he's on, now we can peg Jesus and we can shut him up. We can get rid of him because he's really a hindrance into what we're trying to do here uh, as leaders in the, the nation of Israel. Now it says, uh, teacher, in verse 16, he says, We know that you are true and you teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone for you do not regard the person of men. Now look at the flattery they're using to engage Jesus into this dilemma. Oh great teacher, you're such a wonderful man. You, you are so just and you are so right and you have no respect of persons. And and uh, and so now notice how Jesus so doesn't fall for that. He's so mature, he doesn't fall for the flattery. And then they ask the question. They don't just come out with the question. They first flatter Jesus, and then they ask him, Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, this is where, um, this is where Jesus, it seems as if though he's going to be put in a pretty big, uh, he's, he's in a big situation here, because if he says, yes, pay taxes to Caesar... Now he's out of sorts with his own people. all right. So if he says yes, he's in trouble. Now if he just simply says no, now that would have been nice if he would have said no because on April 15th I could be religious and rebellious all at the same time. But Jesus, uh, if he says no, now he's out of sorts with the Herodians. And in fact, that's every reason to go back to Herod and say we have a a guy here that's going to start a revolution. He's not going to pay taxes. He's promoting this. He's teaching this. Get rid of them. That's instant execution for Jesus there. But let's see how Jesus answers the question. But Jesus perceived their wickedness, and he said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Now he just points blank, just tells them exactly what they are. You're hypocrites. Now he does what any Jewish rabbi would do. He answers the question with another question. And he says, show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? Now notice, they have to answer the question. They said to him, Caesar's. Now this is Jesus' response, and this is his answer. He says, he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's Now, if he stops right there, he's in trouble because he's going to be all out of sorts with his own people. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, but then render the things to God, the things that are God's. Now, notice their response in verse 22. When they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. His critics had nothing to hang him on. He the dilemma was not a dilemma at all. In fact, it was a dilemma for them now. In fact, Jesus' response was so amazing and it was so stunning, they had nothing left to say. And I can only picture his critics forming a circle around him and say, all right, now there is no way out of this. And one by one, they all file away knowing they have nothing left to say. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. In other words... Whose image is on the coin? Well, if it's Caesar's, well, then give to Caesar's what belongs to him. But give God what belongs to him. Now, we have to admit, Jesus does not give us on a silver platter exactly what is all Caesar's and what is all necessarily God's. He doesn't necessarily give us on a platter, well, this is exactly how much you as a church should be involved in the state, and this is how much the state should be involved with the church. He doesn't give us that. But he does certainly give us something that we should really think about it. What belongs to God? The answer is everything. Everything belongs to God. Caesar belongs to God. The fact that Caesar is allowed to rule and reign belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. Whose image is on you? God's image. You belong to God. And so, while Jesus doesn't give us a clear Uh, defining picture of what what where everything belongs he does certainly give us something to think about and I think the reason Jesus answers that way is he wants us to think about what belongs to God and maybe we should just I thought about maybe we should just end the sermon right there split up into small groups and just talk about what does it mean what did Jesus say when he said give to God what belongs to God because everything belongs to God including Caesar Now, there are several implications, I think, that I want to look at here very quickly um, on this response. Give to God what belongs to God. Implication number one, that everything that Caesar has or does is derived from what belongs to God. If you remember, Jesus is standing in front of Pilate, and he's not answering any questions. He's just silent. And Pilate says, finally out of frustration, he says, Jesus, don't you realize I have authority to crucify you or to let you go free? And that's when Jesus responds. He says, Pilate, you would have no authority over me unless it was given to you from above. And Jesus recognized that the very fact that Pilate has this power right now to whether make him free or, or, or crucify him, belonged to God. It was God's decision, and Caesar only rules as a result of the sovereignty of God. Implication number two: there are limitations on civil authority. There are li- limitations on civil civil government. If you look at the Book of Acts, I think in chapter five, where Peter and John are told to shut up, don't come in here, don't preach in the temple. Uh, Stay away from here. And they said, we're not going to do that. Nope, we're not going to do that. We ought to obey God rather than man. And in that case, it seems like they are rebelling against civil authority. But once civil authority interferes with the commandments of God, that's when you and I as people can no longer adhere to what civil government demands or requires. For example, a Nazi Germany that says we should exterminate a certain race of people and just get rid of them. And six million Jews died as a result of that. Us as Christians and as believers need to say, no, that's wrong. Or the killing of the unborn and things like that. We as Christians need to say that interferes with God owning everything. God owns the unborn. He owns the Jews. His image is on them. We have no right, even as civil authority and as civil government, to harm and danger and take away what God's image is on So God is over everything, and therefore it does limit Caesar's authority. And implication number three, all of our submission to civil authority is shaped by the fact that God owns everything. You see, we submit to civil authority for the Lord's sake. We submit to our civil government, to our policemen, our bailiffs, our clerk of courts. For the Lord's sake, we ought to be humble servants. And we ought to be obeying our traffic laws. I'll never forget, I worked for a, um, a deputy sheriff one time, and I, I asked him, says, I said, so what's the most difficult part of your job? He thought a little bit, and he looked at me, and he said, people. <laughs> In other words, if people would just behave, you know, I'd have a pretty easy job. And uh, so we as, we as believers, as, as followers of Christ, we ought to obey our traffic laws. We ought to obey and pay our taxes. We ought to obey our employers and be on work on time and not fudge what our employers require of us. So we, we don't necessarily submit because an earthly government claims us, but we submit for the Lord's sake and in turn our obedience then actually becomes worship our obedience to civil authority becomes worship and i think the underlying theme that jesus is trying to tell us here in matthew 22 is listen everything belongs to god give to caesar what belongs to him but do it for my sake do it for the lord's sake because your obedience becomes worship what kind of an example would that be if the early church would have rose up in rebellion and uh, would have decided, we're not going to listen to Caesar, we're not going to obey, uh, as long as it didn't interfere with, with God's commands, what kind of a testimony would that have been? And so we, we do know the early church was, they were law-abiding citizens. I also want to briefly look in Romans 13, that's our passage, actually, we have that in our statement of faith. Um, Paul's response as well, I'm just going to go through this very quickly here for the sake of time. In Romans 13, it is very interesting that Paul raises this issue. Nobody is asking him the question. In the middle of what I call the Mount Everest of the gospel, the book of Romans, I mean, he is in some of the the finest doctrine we have on, on salvation and sanctification and justification. All of a sudden, this chapter appears about how we should be respecting government and civil authority. So why was Paul putting this in the middle of what I call the Mount Everest of salvation. Why would Paul put it there? Now, there are several things we do know at the time that the book of Romans was written. So he's writing to Christians in Rome. Now, approximately five, six, seven years prior to the writing of Romans, Jewish believers were expelled from the city of Rome because Claudius Caesar said, I don't want you here. Now, we're not for sure sure why Caesar decided to do that, but something was going on that he said, listen, you Jewish Christians, just get out. Now, actually, we know that uh, Aquilus and Priscilla were part of that expulsion. And so think about it in this way. I think Paul is very, very wise and very respectful when he writes this letter because Christians are coming back into Rome. There's a new Caesar. There's a new emperor on the throne. They're coming back. and But he wants to address The issues yet in a very tactful, respectful way. So think about it. Paul understands that this letter is going to find itself in the hands of a Roman official. And so he wants to be very respectful. And he raises a very interesting thing because in this passage, he is saying, Listen, we as believers have a responsibility to you, but Caesar, you have a responsibility towards your own citizens. And you better do your job. We'll do ours, but you do yours. And uh, let's, let's read here in uh, the first seven verses. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Again, he is, he is agreeing with what Jesus said. Everything belongs to God. Caesar belongs to God. The fact that Caesar is appointed into that position is because of the sovereignty of God. God allows him to be there. But then he says, therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. And I'm saying this is our responsibility. This is our duty as believers in Rome. We are to respect. We are to submit. We are, we, we are to give ourselves under the authority. In fact, if, if you resist, is to resist God. And so Paul makes it very clear what our responsibility is as citizens of heaven is to obey and to submit. Then he says, For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Now notice what he he shifts the responsibility. He says, Hey, Caesar, you have a job as well. It's your job to reward the good. Okay, bless people that obey and submit to you, but it's also your job to punish those who are harming other people and who are doing wrong. And so the, the, um, the, the role of Caesar was to reward the good and punish the evil. And then he goes on to say, Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. Notice again, We don't just obey civil authorities to avoid punishment, but for conscience' sake, for the Lord's sake. We obey and we submit for the Lord's sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due taxes, to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And so Paul is saying, listen, Caesar... We are good, law-abiding citizens. We will respect you, but in turn, we ask that you respect us. We're not trying to do anything, create any kind of upheavals. We're not trying to lead rebellions, but please leave us Christians alone and let us practice our faith in peace. In turn, we are more than willing to submit and to pay our taxes and to honor you as a respected authority because God has placed you there. And so that's Paul's response. And so our reason for obedience to civil government is going to be entirely different than a non-believing citizen, because a non-believer is simply obeying so he doesn't get in trouble. We obey because of conscience' sake, because of the Lord's sake. That's why we obey our civil authorities. Civil, authority, civil government is to reward good and punish evil, yet that alone has its own limitations. And I want to close today's sermon with just a very simple nursery rhyme to illustrate this. And we've all heard this nursery rhyme ever since we were in school, and it goes like this. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall, and Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men could not put Humpty Dumpty back together again. You see, Humpty Dumpty had a tragic event in his life, and his life was shattered and broken, and he needed to be fixed. Humpty Dumpty, however, did not go to his friends. He didn't go to his family. In fact, he didn't even go to his church. But he went to the White House. We know that because the king got involved. Once he got to the White House... The king wanted to help him, and so he called a congressional meeting. We know that because all of the king's horsemen were there. And out of their pity on poor Humpty Dumpty, they wanted to put him together. Unfortunately, the moral of the story is all the king's horses and all the king's men could not put Humpty Dumpty back together again. You see, what Humpty Dumpty needed in his life was the gospel message of Jesus Christ. He was a broken individual that could not be fixed by civil government. So civil government does have its limitations. We as a church and a body of believers, we actually have the answer that the whole world needs. Humpty Dumpty had his life shattered, but he needed Jesus to fix his broken heart. You see, when we as a church no longer understand our role and our place, then we are kind of like the immune system in our culture. The reason that AIDS is so, uh, so devastating is because it attacks a person's immune system. Very few people actually die from HIV. They die from some other cause, pneumonia, something that any healthy body could easily fight off. And because the immune system is under attack, simple infectious diseases come in and destroy a person. And when the culture, when us as the church no longer understand our role and we no longer understand what is morally right and what is morally wrong and we're so in tune with what is left and what is right, what is liberal and what is conservative, we forget that there's also an up and a down. And when we no longer embrace the truth, we also lower the immune system of our culture. And that's why our civil authorities are forced to add law upon law upon law in order to try to control the evil because we as a church aren't doing our job. On any given day, in a few weeks from now, the NFL will begin. And when an NFL team plays, there is actually three teams that take the field. There's a home team and there is an away team. Now, those two teams are never going to get along. The one team is always trying to go left, and the other team is always trying to go right. And they will play all day, and they will never agree on which way to go. But there's another team that takes the field, and that's the, fee- the team of the officials of the NFL. Now, it is not their job to side with left or right. It is their job. It is not their job to, uh, to be inspired or uninspired by the bruise or the, the, the cheers of the crowd. And it is actually, they're on the field, but they're not of the field. They're in the chaos, but they're not of the chaos. And they've been handed a book. And the kingdom they represent is the kingdom of the NFL. And every decision they make is to come from the book and is to be reflective of the book of the kingdom that they are representing. And way too many people are expecting the solution to their problem to land on Air Force One. And if we just get the right elected official in place, then somehow that is going to solve the problem. But we all know Humpty Dumpty didn't get his problem fixed. Because while civil authority has its place, and it has its its place in our world, we as a church also have ours. And I'll never forget, there was a... um, a pastor friend that I know that, uh, now here I'm going to get a little political, but forgive me for that. But he actually got invited to, when Trump was campaigning, he actually got invited to a closed circuit meeting. There were no cameras, no, no, uh, no media. And he said, when Trump talked, there, there were several thousand evangelical pastors there. And he, he told them, now look, when I take the White House, you will have a voice there. But he said, listen, you pastors need to do your job. You need to preach the gospel. And he said, furthermore, look at what you've done to the, to the poor. You didn't want the poor anymore, so you gave them over to the government. Now look what our government has done with the welfare system. They've made a mess out of it. And that man told me, he said, when I walked out of that meeting, he said, he stomped on our toes because he said, you need to do your job. And I think he understood. Civil government has its place and has its responsibility, but so do we as a church because we are the immune system to the world. We are the answer that Humpty Dumpty needs. We have the hope of Jesus Christ in our lives. We are to be of the world, but not in the world. We're to proclaim Jesus, and part of that proclamation is to be submissive to our civil authorities. And we truly are the hope that changes the world. I like what Daniel, in closing, I just want to read Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. And this is what Daniel says. He says blessed be the lord be the name of god forever and ever for his wisdom and might are his he changes the times and seasons he removes kings and he raises up kings he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding even daniel realized and recognized that every king and currently he would have been serving under nebuchadnezzar who was the most powerful man in the world And just like that, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was taken away from them. And the Persians came and took it from them because God allowed it. And so while we are citizens of heaven, we have a duty to respect and honor our civil authorities. But we do it out of respect and we do it for the Lord's sake so that our obedience might actually become worship. And I... uh, I know politics can be very divisive but let's remember we're not left or right Whether we probably are on one side or the other we probably are either left or right but let's remember there's an up and a down that matters far more and we are citizens of another kingdom and we represent the king and we are the ones that have the answer to poor Humpty Dumpty's needs so why don't we uh, close why don't we all stand and and we'll have a closing prayer. And uh, I hope that was as accurate as I could get it from Scripture. And I would, I would love to hear from our civil authoritarians as well. And uh, please correct me if I am wrong. I certainly want to be open for correction. But uh, let's pray.